welcome to another Pro Video Coalition PVC News podcast. We're recording this one. This is the week of uh, November the 11th as the year is quickly winding down. Scott Simmons here, and I'm uh, joined again by Mr. Damian Allen, who's out Hello. in California. Damian, how you doing? Doing good. You're there with uh, Paul McKenna in the Moviola Studios, who is running audio and is going to talk all things audio uh, on this little chit-chat. Hello, Paul. Hello. And we've got Gary Adcock in Chicago. Gary. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Welcome back. I'm doing well. So, you know, this was big news week, big news quite recently. So we can't talk about new stuff without talking about the biggest news of the week, which I just saw uh, pop up on the verge. B&H dodged millions in taxes, New York Attorney General alleges. More than $7 million in taxes allegedly owed. Uh-oh. Discuss. It's a new news, so I haven't really even read the article yet, but... Um, According to the suit, B&H offered instant rebates but failed to pay taxes on the discount. <coughs> huh. Over 13 years, the suit alleges, received at least $67 million in reimbursements on those deals. Now, I know that B&H has always been a very popular place to order from, especially in my state, partly because they don't or didn't until recently charge sales tax. Of course, you were supposed to pay the sales tax as a, as a um, resident of the state. But they've always had very competitive prices. Is this perhaps this is why? Yeah, their their advantage was taken out when they started doing that. And now it used to be if you bought in New York, you pay sales tax. If you bought in any other state, there was no sales tax. But now there's a law that uh, I think pretty much 38 states want to collect tax from interstate commerce. Right. Well, that's a big, uh, you know, sales tax is huge when you're buying a $3,000 computer or an $8,000 camera yeah. and stuff. So that's always, you know, that's always been a, a, a big thing. And they always had good good service. You could call in, talk to people. Um, you know, I think they just became synonymous with the mail order company in our industry. But, you know, they've had some uh, run-ins with the law, you know, Johnny Law in the past with some, I think, lawsuits from employees alleging, you yeah. know, work practices that were not, the greatest and things like that. So this isn't their first, you know, their first rodeo with, uh, you know, with dumb, the, with dumb question, but you're saying, be. you're saying six or 7 million. Is that what it's saying? It said more than 7 million in taxes allegedly. I, I owed. mean, is that, is that like a month's earnings for them though? They're, they're, I mean, that's I don't know. Is more it, like, it's, it's not even a week. So I would yeah. Imagine. Yeah. Like uh, that seems like, I mean, obviously, it's an infraction, but over that amount of time, it's surprising that the number's so low. Well, and the other thing that people don't think about about B&H is, is that they have a, their database is by far the most extensive in the industry. Oh, and wow. there are a yeah. number of manufacturers that have large SKUs of products that actually like reference the B&H database for, product and for, for their own product information. And there's more than a few companies in media and entertainment that do that. And I've always found that really fascinating that they, they give so much to B&H and price discounting and everything to be able to maintain the data stream back out of them. Yeah. Do you remember when they used to mail out in the mail that humongously large, thick, and heavy catalog? They still, oh, yeah. they still do. They still do that. Yeah, they should be sued. Really? They should be sued by the postman. <laughs> <laughs> for yeah, for back injuries and things yeah. like that. I stopped getting it a few years ago, but I do remember at NAB. I do believe they're always um, giving that out. But I mean, that's you know that actually just popped across the newswire, so that'll be something to watch as that uh, plays out. Because again, that's cer certainly an, an important um, company for many of us. Uh, Many people in this in this space, but yeah, well, you know, we'll watch and see what happens. But of course, the other big news, 
as we all know, is that uh, what's it called? Disney Plus yes. launched. Did everybody sign up? Nope. No, I didn't. I'm getting around Not to yet. it. I Did anybody yet. sign up? Did you sign up? No. It, it, it crashed the first night. I know that. I know uh, maybe we, so maybe we should re, re, return to this story when one of us has actually watched the bloody thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just but, but so many things to sign up for. Yeah, but that was the interesting thing about it. Is like, you know, there were so many people on it. Now, I'm in a household with no children. So I'm signing up for it just for myself. I, and, and that's actually contrary to their marketing plan because they want you to be on it so you can stream all the cartoons and, and have all the kids' shows. And, and I want it for The Mandalorian and the Star Wars and, and, and the Marvel stuff. So it's going to be really interesting to see whether people without children log on to it as much as people with children. Well, I think Mandalorian's the, getting some good reviews. As yeah, the first that, episode is. Yeah. That's actually what's they, made me want. They don't have uh, yeah. Song of the South, even though they have tons of stuff from the Disney archives. Really, that that one is not apparently on there. So well, look, they, they that's, have that's interesting. They have Marvel. They have the whole Star Wars thing. I mean, Pixar. So there's, yeah, there's there's, Pixar. there's still plenty for the for the big kids. I think you know at the end of the day with their catalog in terms of what they own. Oh, I agree. Are they going to oh, use any just, of the ESPN stuff? Is that on there also? I mean, they own it. I don't know. Uh, not as far as I know. None of the sports stuff is on there, oh. as far as I know. Okay. I think there's some bundles where you can get Hulu in and get ESPN Plus and stuff like that. But it's um, – I was surprised at the price because the price is, uh, even though I don't know how much it is, uh, six ninety nine per month. Right. Which is yeah, you, not bad considering – If you pay well, for a year in advance, it's only four ninety nine a month. Oh, really? Yeah. That was actually one of the interesting things with it. I mean, that's less than a you know a trip to Starbucks for most people. I'll so. wait till my children ask for it. Yeah, the, the interesting my kids thing though, yeah. I, I've been playing with Apple TV Plus. Yeah, what came, do you think of that? It came with the phone, so I used it, and that's actually I, I I'm actually really happy with the production values on the couple of shows that I've watched. I watched the first two episodes of the Jason Momoa One C. Um, I'm I'm on the second episode of For All Mankind, and both of them are incredibly well produced projects. So is a morning show. We've watched that one, uh, my wife and I, and it's pretty good. It's gotten some bad, some bad reviews, I think, or some. I think I would say mediocre reviews, but you know, it's entertaining. Well, yeah, that's what I found about C. I found C very entertaining, you know, and that's that's a, a culture where you know it's the future, and they're all blind, and yeah. and these two children come in that are then have sight. By the end of the second episode, you have people who have sight around, and it's a very interesting thing. Just watching the battles of fighting. When Except you why can't are they putting see and only hear? Why are they putting colored um, uh, warfare paint on their faces if they can't see? That's why. <laughs> they sure have people watching that. them and speaking like up, down, move left, move right. <laughs> yeah, actually, actually, it was just mud. It was the only thing I saw them use. So. Yeah. That uh, speaking of Apple, that's a good segue, Gary. Did you guys see where uh, DJI wants to let anyone with a smartphone? Wait, that's not proper. That's not the right segue, is it? DJI <laughs> wants anyone with a smartphone to monitor nearby drones. So this is an app they're apparently looking at releasing next year that would let people within a certain distance of a drone get some information about that drone using some sort of the built-in. Wi-Fi weirdness that those things have built in, to, which to I thought this is kind of fascinating. Because how many times have you been in your backyard and you see a drone flying around? You're wondering what in the he double hockey sticks is that thing doing flying around my house? Not that you get suddenly all this information on your phone, but you know that's 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 tricky. It's weird when you see a drone flying around your house. Or, or if you have a shotgun, it's kind of fun. But 
Uh, it is illegal to fire it off within the city limits, at least where I live. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm I always Chicago, I'm waiting. Doesn't for, seem to stop anybody. I'm waiting for those uh, Amazon <laughs> drones. It's like, oh, I wonder what's in this one. You know, it's just like <laughs> party time. Well, yeah, well, I wonder how that app will work you for train, the, uh, commercial can, drones can if they ever actually actually happen. Can you train dogs? To yeah, go they get them, like with ducks. <laughs> go get the package. Just shoot it down, down and send the dog. Well, I mean, you've seen the one, the, the guy that trained the hawks. That's oh yeah, eagles. Eagles. Yeah. Isn't, eagles. Isn't the government eagles. doing this anyway? Like, is it's is this, is this a secret program or is this a public program that they're? I, I thought it was a public program. I mean, I've seen it. I, it was. Uh, I've seen two instances of one person using eagles and another person using something else. I think it was a hawk. Small children, um, like Cooper's hawk or something, that actually to attack drones. That's yeah. great. I think they. I think they should. There are too many drones. There are too many drones out there. Um, all right. So big story of the week, uh, Paul. Tell us about this. Oh. Isotope's new plugin. Well, yes, called Dialogue Match. Well, first of all, What's all their stuff do? is crazy. Now, I mean, this is not a dating app, just to be clear. <laughs> no, just imagine. It's you, based you, on voice. You do ADR or you do, say you, you want to go back and forth between your lavalier and your boom mic. Well, you feed one in. That's, your, that's now your standard. You feed the other ones in, and it analyzes the EQ, compression, and the reverb. Wow. That matches it. So dialogue editing just became not, not – it's never easy, but it's just so much easier. I mean, all their stuff is a little, is a little crazy how good it is. And the, and the fact that the stuff you can do with it just didn't exist five years ago or ten years ago. Now, yeah. I do know that um, – Premiere had a had something that would would do something like this, but it wasn't the reverb. It was more the EQ, and the just the the overall envelope of it. But this one's well, pretty Adobe good. showed at Adobe Max. They showed a future technology that I think is supposed to be somewhat somewhat similar. Like there's nothing built into Premiere now that would do that specifically. Well, there's transcriptive from Digital Anarchy. Well, different though. That's uh, that's it's that's a, a different... transcription stuff. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is uh, I think Paul, what you're talking about, you're you mentioned sort of like lavalier and boom, but can it work on uh, like if you have boom recorded in this room and then boom recorded in a different room with the same voice? Yeah. Or is you, it what you do is you save your setting and you find whatever your test one is, and this is what you want this character to sound like indoors. Uh, you can put that on anything, including ADR. And it'll match it for that. So now, is this? Oh. I mean, oh. obviously, we've had microphone modeling, digital modeling for years, and I, like, so if I've got some crappy lavalier and I've got a really high quality boom, are we going to get even in the ballpark? Do you think on this? Or I mean, setting aside distortion, obviously, if you've got a distorted signal, even though I know Isotope can actually help out with it, that, it does. It can take distortion yeah. off in the in the RX suite. You can, you have all those features. So what do you think? I mean, well, I don't know if you've had a chance to even look at just, this yet. You know, I never want to spend people's money, but when I look at what uh, all the Isotope products do, they just save money. I mean, there's times when we would have to ADR the whole movie or a whole TV show. We had one for, probably not supposed to say this, but NCIS had a hurricane scene, and they put giant fans in there, and it looked perfect. But all the microphones sounded like crap. <laughs> so they had to deal with that. So I went over and showed two of the assistants how to do it. And they cleaned that thing up and it was all usable. Before that, wow. every word would have been ADR'd for that, wow. for that scene. 
there's no doubt the isotope projects are you know amazing voodoo and this kind of adds to that uh to their legend i suppose is this um did i see somewhere that this is pro tools only um the, no i don't think so because it's it, it acts as a standalone but it, in pro tools it'll act as an audio suite oh okay but there so is a standalone is, uh... only you can buy it's going to be available three different ways one of them inside one of the production suites one of them inside the rx7 i think and then by itself and by itself it's only i think it lists for two uh 399 but you can buy it for 299 right now you know, okay. to me, what sounds which is, amazing, which is two, which is two hours in a suite. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What sounds amazing is even the fact that it's yeah. it's calculating I mean, yeah, the I mean, compression and all that. Because the number of times I baked in compression, you know, and then six months later I had to come back and try to do a match on a voiceover. Well, it's almost impossible. <laughs> almost impossible. But this so. thing does it with artificial intelligence. Yeah, it's like we all know is the future. Well, they. This is what happens when you when you Will graduate from up, MIT. Uh, bad Skype, digital no hits no, no. not not that's coming next year. That's yeah. <laughs> Never it, it seen does, enough. It does look pretty cool, and I think every time Isotope comes out with something new, it's like it makes it makes us all, especially people who are deep in the audio world, kind of pause in their tracks and see what you know what amazing thing has um has has have they come up with next? Yeah, when something changes how you work, that's a big thing. Like for audio, this is a big, big thing for, for people who work in film. And not just film, but imagine all the old archive stuff where they have um, different voice recordings for even yeah. songs or singing. Yeah. You start putting them in and all of a sudden this stuff is usable where it was thrown throw away before. So people. Well, speaking of uh, amazing things that change the way you work... I posted a review of Lumberjack Builder this week, which for Premiere Pro, which is a uh, builder is a part of the Lumberjack system suite, which is originally designed for um, sort of onset logging and uh, for Final Cut 10, which is a way you could have your iPad or your computer and you could log footage and stuff like that on the set. And then it, it populates in Final Cut 10 with keywords and, um, you know, uh, favorite ranges and things like that. But the builder aspect was their sort of text-based transcription tool, which lets you transcribe your interviews and then basically edit the text and send that edit back to your NLE um, to build a string out or a radio edit. And that was originally designed for Final Cut, but they implemented this in Premiere Pro. So I posted a review of that this week. And I'll just say this, you know, simply that it's amazing to be able to edit your video by just going through and editing the text because, you know, the days of having to, you know, transcribe your own footage with markers inside of Premiere can be long gone because to cut and paste text blocks and rearrange them and with one click see that edit assembled in Premiere or Final Cut if you're doing it that way is uh, quite revolutionary and really, really fast and actually a lot more fun than just the old way of constantly you know, listening to things over and over and over again and um yeah, it's cool. Not that any of you guys have uh, used that, but I wanted to mention it. Well, yeah. Any I, questions I, about it? I'll answer them. I do. <laughs> Is it available for Avid? When will it be available for Avid? Uh, it's not available for Avid, and the reason most of their tools are not available for Avid is that Avid does not support XML as its uh, interchange protocol. Avid is AAF-based, which is a whole... My understanding when talking to the guys behind Lumberjack Systems and Intelligent Assistance is AAF is a very much more complex um, 
uh, programming language or tool in which to translate back and forth. XML is human readable and it's very, very it's dumb. Much, I don't want to say it's more simple. No, it is. But, it really is. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know you can open an XML file and actually see text in there, and I think um, AAFs are binary, if I remember correctly. Yeah, no, I, I've no, actually I've written a bunch of Python parsers for XML, uh, and it's a piece of cake. I mean, it, you see it, you can search for strings really easily. Uh, so yeah, I mean, once you get into some of those more complex systems, they have more accuracy. You know, you've got a better chance with AAF of getting things interpreted correctly. But you're right. Actually, writing the software for it is much, uh, much tougher. Well, AF was originally designed as, if I remember correctly, you know, a sort of a protocol that everybody would be able to use, but it never really took off. Final Cut 7 supported XML, and then Final Cut 10 has a new version of XML. But I think the thing that makes it work in Premiere is Premiere adopted the old Final Cut 7 XML and has tweaked it kind of to their own um, to their own world. Um, yeah. But I, I think, you know, that the guys from Lumberjack just saw that People wanted it for Premiere, and, and there's a good there's a good market out there for it. And it's a, um, you know, it, it is a cool way to work. I don't, I, I, you know, I think they've looked before at dealing with and working with AAF, but they just decided that it's not worth, you know, probably not worth the investment, the big programming investment for the return that they, um, yeah. that they might get. But well, you know, well, it I seems think, like someone would do something similar for Avid. I think what, what happens is, you know. We just want the simple thing that works, and that's why XML and even EDLs. I mean, we still use EDLs for conform because they're just so <laughs> yeah. dumb that they work. I mean, on the on the audio side, we're still using MIDI, which is this ancient 1980s uh, digital protocol, which is ridiculous. And we have all kinds of sophisticated hardware hanging off that just because it's it's understandable, it's simple. And I think that's why XML won over some of these other things, or at least has won so far. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's, it certainly doesn't do everything perfectly, and and there are times when it when it doesn't do something, you become frustrated with it. But you know, for the most part, it's enabled some pretty amazing workflows because you can look at all the different tools, third-party applications that uh, support both Premiere and Final Cut 10. There are just tons of them out there, and they're all based along based along um, around XML, you know, protocols in and out. So, I like it. it does enable some cool stuff. Yeah, it's definitely, I, I started using Descript for video and audio editing, and, and, and being able to edit by text is such a massive time saver than having to search through and figure out where the speaker stopped flubbing their lines or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Or, or pulling out the breaths and things like that. That's the other yeah. part of it, too. It's being able to, to work around that breath, that, that, that intake they do before they start a sentence so that you have to trim anyways, and being able to trim that right at the start of the word you can actually adjust it like within a couple of frames of the start of the word, and it's actually pretty amazing. Okay, you know, just it's, it's what Script Sync on Avid wanted to be. Well, just never just to uh, to push that even a little bit further, I'm actually about to start beta testing Descript's new feature that they're about to come out with, where uh, if someone's flubbed their line, you can actually type into the word processor the replacement line, and the machine learning will use the voice of the speaker. And recreate uh, the words without having what? to actually what? record ADR. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was like voodoo that was proposed for the future. It's it's the future. The future is here. <laughs> the future is now. Wow. Yeah. What is it? Blade Runner. We're in the year yeah. we passed the Blade Runner date. So, so I'll, that's I'll, pretty cool. <laughs> in the next couple of weeks, I'll have had some time to play with it. I think so. It'll be interesting to see. If you go to the website, Descript's website, they actually have one where you can 
just type stuff in with some of their pre-baked voices and hear. Sometimes it sounds perfect. Sometimes it sounds a little funky. But uh, still, if you think about the number of times we've all had to go through and look for a, a vowel here and an S sound there and try to like kludge together something that someone didn't say right, it's yeah. uh, it could be amazing. Frankenbiting. Wow. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, I guess that's all the news for the week. Nothing else happened. Well, there's that audio, other audio thing. <laughs> what, you mean Which, good speakers on a new MacBook? It's actually pretty amazing. I got I got to say. Let's talk about that. I, the 16 inch? Silly. That, that yeah, is the, the big 16 inch. Yeah. So, Gary, you went to New York to the uh, to the super secret launch. Tell us about it. Well, you know, you, it's a normal Apple thing. You go to an address and you stand around and wait to go in. And as, as the group of people, there was about 10 of us, um, we're getting ready to walk in. I'm, my phone starts lighting up, and it's like, <laughs> wow, Apple's announced release dates for new Mac Pro and XDR display and release the information on the on the 16-inch laptop. And, oh, it's shipping at the end of the week. And you're like, I'm in a PR meeting. This is not supposed to happen. <laughs> and, 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 it, and it literally was the first time I've ever done an Apple PR event. I've been doing them for a very long time, since the beginning of Final Cut, um, that I didn't sign an NDA. <laughs> Well, now you know why. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that should have been a Nothing hint right there. <laughs> well, and, and, and it was really interesting because we couldn't take pictures in any of the rooms, even though the displays and setups were really nice. But it was one of those things you could take photos at the very last stage of just the MacBook Pro in a room all by itself, all alone, you know, sitting on a table with no props or anything else on it. It was like, yeah, it looks so lonely sitting there. <laughs> so, well, tell, all right, tell us about the thing. Yeah. It's actually, you know, one more inch. It's fundamentally, it, it's fundamentally just um, a new generation of the existing Thunderbolt-enabled MacBook Pro. It's got the same four Thunderbolt ports on it that uh, are, you know, one, a single bus on either side of the computer. So you've got four ports on it. Um, got a 20% larger battery that has 100 watt hours now. Um, but that also means that it's got a larger power supply. And the power supply needs to generate 94 watts of power, which is literally at the lim uh, nearly the limit of what um, can be done over USB-C. It's got a 100 watt power limit on those. Mm. Well, pause that for a second. Hang on. You said nearly at the limits of USB-C, but these are Thunderbolt 3 ports, and I know they can support USB-C because that's, the, it's, it, that's uh, the way it the works power, the plug. The power supply, the power supply is USB-C. The, the power supply and cabling is not Thunderbolt. The power supply and cabling is USB-C. Are you saying the cabling internal to the machine or when no, you plug the, 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 something the one in? from Apple. One that comes from Apple is a uh, USB-C cable. It's not a Thunderbolt cable. And it is enabled as a power cable. It's not really designed for anything other than power, though it will pass data and all of that. But it's a USB-C cable that they use from the power supply to the laptop and have for ever since they put USB-C on the laptops. So the first MacBook Air had, had a 25-watt cable, I think it was. Can there be a Thunderbolt 3 power cable? I know they don't ship it, with that does it that works. exist yeah yeah you have to be careful though that was actually one of the real interesting things about the the discussion on power for this was was that you know when you start talking about pushing nearly 100 watts of power through a thunderbolt device uh, the the connector and you're also moving you know a terabyte or gigabytes of data and video and everything else so if you're using your thunderbolt port for power for video and for data 
a single port, it's going to get hot. It's going to get to the thermal limits of the device. And, and it's a question of, of uh, you know, when we see them in the real world, what Apple's going to do to, to deal with the, this issue of thermal sensitivity in the Thunderbolt. And what, what's the battery the life? Port will get hot or the whole machine will get hot trying to process? The ports, the, the ports get hot. The huh. ports get physically hot. Okay. I mean, if you're yeah. doing a lot of data transfer on, a, on an existing, um, my traditional setup with my existing 15-inch MacBook Pro is is it's plugged into a display that supplies 65 watts of power to it. Okay, so I don't have to have a secondary device attached to it to power it. I get the I get DisplayPort and power from the same device. Mm-hmm. Now, if I but I'm not but I'm not doing data across that. When you start adding the ability to do data through USB or through something else on the same connector, you're actually like using the entire bandwidth of the connector that's possible under the current specifications. And you start moving data and video and power in over that port, that sheer um, you know movement of electricity Electrons generates heat, and you know what? The, you know how hot your laptop gets. You know how hot your yeah. MacBook gets. I mean, it's not any different, and it's just a it, it's it's a fundamental function of of being able to a charge or output data. It generates so heat. Is this a case where with two? You said there's two buses, one on each side. You've got two ports on the left, two ports on the right, two separate buses. Would you yeah. need to do something where you just okay? The left side is only going to supply power to the machine, and then I can move all the data and video on out the right side. Or how do would how does one well, deal? Well, see with that, that? And, and I don't know because I wasn't able to to you know put a tester on it or use my own devices on it or anything else. They wouldn't let us plug anything into them in common Apple fashion. That's not unusual. But but when I get my hands on one, the first thing I'll do is start testing all of that because I have the ability to actually test the throughput of the ports and see what the bandwidth is across the ports mm. to be able to make sure that it's accurate and see what it is just to see this. And 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 this is one of the things I've learned working with companies like Corning and GTech and, and LaCie on how they handle Thunderbolt technology. But it really, a lot of it came from my, my work with Intel to understand all of this. And it's, and, and it's one of the issues that when you start using that much power, it's, it's going to be interesting. And traditionally in a workflow, Scott, what I would do is be actually have incoming data on one side and outgoing data on the other side. So if I'm copying camera media, it's in on one side and out on the other. So I'm going across the two buses. And what that does is it allows me to work at the maximum uh, capacity of the drive speed that's available to me. Okay. Yeah, Damian, don't, uh, will you send uh, Gary a uh, 16-inch MacBook Pro, please? Yeah, sure. I'll, let me grab one. Yeah. You know what? That's actually we something that we should actually talk about on Pro Video Coalition sometime. A lot of people don't understand that you have a finite amount of data bandwidth on those buses. And when you start, you know, actually where you hook up the display, where you hook up your Thunderbolt drives can make a massive difference to your throughput. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bus, bus management is a big thing, especially on the Ivy bridges. You know, well, uh, and, and it started being an issue when when we were doing FireWire because people didn't think about the daisy chaining and how much yeah. power it did take off the bus, and and it was one of those things that I came very methodical on how I set up things to be able to get maximum throughput. I have another question: Are they using the new DisplayPort technology, the, the DisplayPort two? The, um, because it technically hasn't been released to the public yet. No, they're not. Okay. Um, but, but. Under the Thunderbolt 3 specifications, which are virtually identical to USB 4 and DisplayPort 
It should be the Thunderbolt users are pretty much enabled in all of this for simplicity's sake. Uh, I'm going to say, unless I hear otherwise, that that people who have you know adopted Thunderbolt three have are not going to have issues as it goes to USB four as the DisplayPort two point which allows multiple eight K displays over that USB C port. Um, that's going to be that's going to be a real groundbreaker, and I think that, that what they're doing is actually enabling it. And it's my understanding of the DisplayPort two spec, which works over the same USB C connector, actually does a lot of what the you know thunderbolt allows it allows you to bond channels across it allows you to take not only the dedicated video channel but also pick the dedicated uh, um, um, data channel and combine them so that you get a more consistent volume of throughput for 8k the other question mm -hmm. is price point where yeah do they, where do they start expensive they're not too bad um, actually no they 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 start at the same price as the existing one <laughs> The, the, they start at twenty three ninety nine. Wow! Yeah, now, I've the fully configured one with sixty four gigs of RAM. You know, that's the other option on it too. So you can now oh, do. That's great. It's not just sixteen gigs of RAM. The base configuration is sixteen gigs of RAM. Now they now offer a thirty two and a sixty four gig option for RAM, and drives up to eight terabytes of solid state. Yeah. yeah, I'm at twenty seven ninety nine on the like the base spec of the of the sixteen inch, which is the two point yeah. three eight core sixteen uh, gigs, uh, uh, four gigs it, of. Uh, and note something really interesting on that: that the six core chip is actually faster than the eight core chip. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's what that again. That's something people often miss: is they think the most expensive processor is going to be the best. But if if you're not having something that can take advantage of multi-threading really well. You may actually be losing a little bit of performance over yeah. going over that uh, I don't, lower model. I True. don't see a six core. They're both. All the option is is eight core. We'll also no. look at that. I'll go back on the start page. The the, uh, the lower end option is a six core. But is that it's the third? Core. Is that six the sixteen core. inch or is that yeah, the thirteen it's a 16, inch? No, it's a sixteen inch. It's a six core i seven and an eight core i nine. Uh, oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So all right, let's talk about that for a second. So 2.6 gigahertz six core or 2.3 eight core. What would be the recommended for, you know, a Premiere user, for instance? What what, what do you think would be better? Uh, gee, that's a good question. Since Premiere is not a multi-threaded application, um, probably you you benefit from the, the same one. from the six core than you would the eight core, yeah. depending on how much RAM you have. Now, the RAM would be the big kick in that because Photoshop in particular is a RAM hog. So the more RAM you have, the faster Photoshop's going to run. They actually mentioned that 64 gigs of RAM makes Photoshop run four times faster mm. than it does with 16. Well, I would say even Premiere for buffering, if especially if you're working at 4K, you, you want as much RAM as you can possibly stack into that thing. Well, well you always after effects, yeah. The six core has the uh, AD, ADM Radeon Pro 5300M, and the eight core has the 5500M. I don't know what those numbers mean, but uh, would that be better? Uh, in um, the higher in the the larger the number, um, the better the card in AMD structure. And the other thing that's that's interesting is is the eight core actually supports four or eight gigs of RAM on the VRAM. VRAM. So yeah. now we get in a situation where we can actually do eight gigs of VRAM on a laptop, which is pretty, pretty substantial. So what applications in the pro video space utilize lots of cores best? Does anybody know the answer to this? Well, it question? resolves pretty well, multi-threaded. Yeah. Um, 
I didn't know Maya. where Avid sits on the multi-threading side of things these days. Um, yeah, yeah, Maya does. Scratch, Scratch does. After Effects is is hit and miss depending on what you're doing and what plugins you use. Okay, right. why would they not make better multi-core support in all these tools because, because all these machines? And I got a 10-core iMac Pro here, and I think I could have got, like, what does that go up to, like, God, I don't know, 100 core? No, it's not 100 cores. Because you can get more, way more cores than 10. Yeah, one of the things is multi-threading is just really hard. It's a really tough thing to do well in uh, when you're developing. And uh, it's getting better. The latest versions of C++ have actually incorporated into the language a bunch of things to kind of make it easier for developers. But part of the problem is the legacy code. So a lot of these apps, if they're quite a few years old, unless they go and rewrite the core code base from scratch, it, it's very difficult just to multi-thread code that was single-threaded to start with. Mm. And that's that's where we get a lot of the problem. Uh, you know, well, the other, that's Adobe. That's all the Adobe stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's all yeah. built on on an ancient architecture. I, I got to tell you, I, I was using After Effects just the other day. Uh, this new version, presumably, it was the latest download last week. And I was having a real problem getting decent playback when I hit the space bar. And I just, you know, it's still, it surprises me that there isn't something more optimized there, but yeah. I don't know. Well, speaking of optimization, um, you know, the Final Cut 10 Summit was last week uh, at up in uh, Cupertino. Um, and one thing I remember seeing coming out of that was that one thing that Apple has been doing was, was I don't want to say rewriting Final Cut Pro 10, because that sounds like, I don't know if that's exactly what happened, but big time optimization to make it utilize the metal framework that Apple is pushing now to its fullest extent, and I, you know, I, I'm assuming that's very, very multi-threaded. I don't know, but you know, that could be a place where, uh, you know, they'll pay some big dividends down the road if that's indeed what they did is to is to really optimize it for that for that new architecture. Because even though, you know, in Premiere you can choose Metal or OpenCL or uh, Open, what's the NVIDIA one, C um, CUDA, yep. depending on what your setup is and what system you're on. So they are having to kind of support everything, but you know I think Apple's in that place where it can say, you know what, no, we're just going to support ours that we believe is the best, and that might give some performance advantages, especially in the future, and especially if you've got a big honking, you know, Mac Pro. Well, but they there. but they had to do that for Catalina. I mean, they had to update the software for the for the next generation of the code, and now that they're cross using elements of the code between iOS and and Catalina, I think you're going to see more and more of that. Um, it was one of the things they focused on, you know, because the demo I saw had not only the MacBook Pros, but it also had the Mac Pro and the H the XDR displays, and and I forgot how gorgeous Apple builds stuff. I got to be honest, that that Mac Pro torn apart and looking at the elements where the the logic board is all black and you just see little imprints of what the slots are, and most of the chipset and wiring is hidden behind this. Um, I, I looked at it and all I could think about is is I was playing with this Mac Pro box, was thinking about, wow, I really don't want to put put you know dig underneath somebody's desk and change cardboards out in this thing. <laughs> you and, need a flashlight. Yeah, and and one of the one of the other issues was is that each one of the modules, the individual modules that go around the cards, um, are heavy. I mean, they're built with heat sinks in them, and they're designed to control the airflow and all of that. And and if you put all the expansion modules and everything in the computer, it weighs almost twice as much. 
It wow. doubles the weight because of all the heat sinks and things that are built into yeah, it. You know, is it's why it's stunning. Got wheels. Yeah. Speaking of power, actually, actually because... the wheel, I got to say the wheels. No, no, I got, I got, I got to hit Scott on the wheels. The wheels are actually really funny because I thought that was a joke. How they got wheels? I really like, like did it. But when I was setting playing with one during, you know, which would be a configuration time, having wheels on it was an absolute godsend. And it's like, wow. There's some Mac system administrator that thought of this process to put wheels in this thing just so we can spin it around and work on both sides simultaneously. And that was the only time I could ever think of wheels being appropriate on it because <laughs> it looks like a little metal suitcase. But it just during the config state, putting wheels on it would be just a blessing. And I've never thought about that before until now. That's, fun. That's funny. Yeah. But those things, uh, you know, you were talking about the laptop power. Those things are going to draw like, you know, well beyond a thousand uh, watts just in regular operation or something, right? And when you throw on the display, the big old display with that, uh, some people are going to be pulling pulling their fuses, tripping their breakers on uh, <laughs> on their new systems. Uh, you'd think so. Yeah, you I mean, mean, in their house? What do you mean? Well, I mean, uh, you know, like your your typical uh, even an office line is you know like fifteen amps. Once you start piling up that kind of uh, weight on the power line, you could easily trip a breaker uh, in a in an office environment. So yeah, it's putting two tungsten lights on the same outlet. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. So that I'll be interested to see if that ever becomes of an issue, if anyone can actually afford one of these things outside of one of the you know large studios. Now, Gary, you looked at the uh, XDR, the Pro Display XDR, because they had that there as well, did they not? They did, and uh, it's uh, sexier than I thought it was going to be. How it's, did I don't know what image they were playing on it, but I got to see all kinds of things. I saw I saw still images, I saw six K video, I saw eight K video. I looked at a number of different things on it just to see. So, um, you know, and you the know question what? gets gets to back to you know Apple's trying to push this XDR display as their next generation it works in the wide gamut p3 color space which is required for HDR it's a thousand nits with peak brightness at 1600 which is kind of weird it's like okay why make it brighter than it needs to be for this purpose um, but but one of the interesting things was and it was actually a question posed by one of the other new uh, press people that was there was you know how does this fall? in the scheme of things and and you know we go back to the final cut disaster where they put out final cut without the ability to output to a professional device that basically killed you know was the final cut the death knell for final cut in my mind was that you know here's here you build this app for professional purposes and i can't connect to any simpty device to be able to output to be able to you know maintain a simpty standard and now that we're moving to this tapeless workflow in, in a new environment, you know, how long is it going to be before we don't have to have the hardware interspace um, to, you know, control the frame rates, to control the timing, to control the color space like we used to? And I wonder about that in the way things are going. I know. Netflix, in, are, are you ahead. saying that the Pro X Display XDR plugged into the Mac Pro running, and we'll say Final Cut because that's that's Apple's thing that they are going to have or may have or maybe in the future they would like to have all the internal controls built into the software working with their hardware where you yes. where you negates the need for a black magic device or an AJA device that you just haven't plugged in. That's pretty and much true. And, and you have an ASUS compliant workflow. Yeah. 
and 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 they that's their plan that's that's the game plan and it's been the game plan since final cut pro was released 10 years ago um that they were seeing the the no longer seeing the need to support hardware specific devices to mm-hmm. specify a simpty output well how much is the pro display xdr going to cost do you do you, do you know this number? Oh, uh, a lot it's like four thousand dollars five thousand dollars with a stand all right so let's let's say 10 or less okay i'm looking here at a um uh, canon dp v3120 that's forty thousand dollars it, it this is their their pro hdr reference monitor 31 inch forty thousand dollars it is uh two thousand nits two million to one contrast ratio versus the pro display xdr which is a thousand nits and a million to one contrast ratio um the canon display has uh sdi inputs the uh, apple display does not so i these are meant to live in different different worlds i'm guessing well but I, I'm I agree sure with apple that would say no you know what there are places where you can replace your forty thousand dollar canon dp well and that's, and, and that's youtube and and vimeo and and you know the self-published places and the people who are doing independent films and and there's a lot of places where these could could replace that um but in, not Netflix, not, not a netflix in, compliant pipeline well i don't know because it hasn't come up in a netflix compliant pipeline yet and that's the interesting part about this is is that we don't you know it hasn't been um, I don't know anybody who's QC'd something that has run that way that's passed mm-hmm. uh, for for uh, Netflix or, you know, we used to call it a PBS standard because they had the lowest standards of anything for, you know, it had to work on PBS to be able to air on anything. And it's interesting how we have, we've, you know, come forward in the marketplace to the point where we actually are thinking about losing that hard mint, that hardware verification that we're so used to as part of our workflows. Well, I think I think we'd all be amazed at how many things we potentially watch. Probably not on Netflix, but probably on Amazon, that um, are finished without those pieces of hardware between the um, finishing station and the monitor. Oh, you know, right, so? yeah. Tons of them are, are are, and it works that way for many people. And I think you're right that, you know, there's a the brave new world of um, internet only delivery doesn't, well, doesn't require of- that stuff. Yeah, and there's also a lot of environments where people produce the content and then some engineer at the station brings it all into into SMPTE standard as he puts it up on the server. And the servers do that. And that's actually become a function of how the media playout servers are working. So, you know, we're going to start seeing that, particularly in NDI, the new tech uh, a wireless system for, for production facilities. That actually has a number of of protocols built into it for checking and maintaining SMPTE standard output, even though it's all tapeless environment. So it's, cool. it, the tools are there. So, well, we've said before, it's kind of a brave new world, and uh, well, and it, we said it before. I mean, be. I mean you, you look at companies like Asus and Dell and all of that that are putting out, you know, Dolby certified displays, and you think about the desktop and how we look at it. I mean, I have a, I'm staring at a at a 32 inch thousand nit monitor right now. So it's 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 there. It's available to us. It's just a matter of who's going to be the first one to say you don't need this anymore. And Apple's kind of pushing that bound with the YouTube and everything else. But you know how they're not YouTube and everything else. How they're dealing with YouTube video with the streaming servers with how the Instagram is doing things and how all these producing these people are self-producing content for deliverables. Yeah. Well. I think that about wraps it up, gentlemen. Any last words of wisdom from the, the week? 
Um, I, I'm going to take one thing, and it's my shot at Apple. It's not about the power supply. It's that if you're going to sell products to video and television professionals, I wouldn't be doing the metrics against Fortnite and Tomb Raider <laughs> and Unity, a developer's app, versus DaVinci Resolve. Um, it just is not a fair metric, guys. And and in the article that's on PVC, I pulled you know two of Apple's graphics about that specifically, and one is yeah. Fortnite, the other one's DaVinci Resolve, and it's just I don't see how those match up in our world the same way. Was that they're trying to they're trying to hit obviously multiple different markets with one landing page or like were were there game developers well, there at the event you were there, at? There were there were there were a couple developers there, and Apple actually said the the Apple personnel actually commented about the fact that that game developers and app developers are their largest pro user market for laptops, which hmm. is the reason why they shortened the touch bar and you know put an escape key and and the you know the physical ID key for the fingerprint stuff because hmm. they found that people wanted an escape key. They Developers want an escape key, so they actually brought back the physically brought back an escape key into this thing. So, well, a lot of people they were complaining that some of the uh, the um, the marketing stuff around the MacBook Pro 16 did not have didn't show Final Cut 10 and video editing. They showed some Resolve. There's lots of audio stuff, um, but I think on the website there, when you look at some of those benchmark specs, they're showing Unity Editor, Fortnite, Tomb Raider, Final Cut 10, and Resolve. So they're not they haven't completely. Forgot the other about thing in the presentation that I saw, there was no mention whatsoever of the out, the I/O on it. I mean, they talked about how great the laptop was and the new keyboard, which is like, okay, it's a new keyboard, it works, it's great. Um, you know, they spent a good deal of time on the sound, and the new sound in that laptop is nothing short of stunning. And that's the one thing I, I took away from it more than anything else is is they did really really like upped their game on both acquisition and output of sound on the new MacBook Pro, but but. The other thing about it is, is that you know we've got so many developers doing it, and that's the markets where they are. They have to start talking about gaming. They have to start doing that to be able to compete against the other uh, PC manufacturers. Well, I can tell you, living in Nashville, a music town, there are tons of people who take their laptops and do so much work on their laptops. And you know, they're not counting on the speak the built-in speakers. They've got good headphones and they plug them in places and all that. But I think you're right that that just that little extra quality of sound there is going to appeal to a lot of people that I think. Think that you know that normally someone wouldn't think about would want good laptop speakers, but um, it's good to see they can engineer something nicely. Well, it's Apple. They they, they took technology from the phones for the noise canceling in the speakers, and then they used um, uh, a force canceling technology. You know where they they back the subwoofers in the each side of the laptop back and back to each other so that the the vibrations cancel each other out. As part of the as part of the tonal mapping of the system, and it gives you a really really good bass and and really honest stereo sound, and it's a it's a really impressive jump for them. Um, you know the other stuff, the cooling and all that stuff, and power and battery and everything is really great. But being able to finally have a laptop that actually gives a proper sound dimension makes the viewing experience so much better. And it's one that's more neat. inch, so that's yeah. that's important. Yeah, but it's not. But it's only like five percent larger overall. It's three to five percent larger overall, and and I think it's nine percent heavy heavier that Alex Crawler posted on Alex Ford posted online. But it's like, yeah, it's 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 not that much bigger than the fifteen inch laptop. It's less than five percent overall and larger. Hey, well, I'll take the extra extra inch. Yeah. Gary, thanks for going up and uh, reporting back on the uh, on the new laptop. And um, yeah, we'll see what what comes next. Yeah, should be. Damien, thanks for uh, Paul. Thank you guys in uh, LA for joining us. You're welcome. 
and we will call this one a wrap until uh, next time. Thanks for uh, thanks for listening and downloading and liking and what all the stuff one must do for podcasts. Until next time. <laughs>